Hello there, everyone. Welcome to the TSG Podcast. Just a huge disclaimer before we begin that all content produced on this channel is for education and entertainment purposes only. Enjoy the episode. All right, Sean, how are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you doing? <laughs> doing pretty good. There's a lot of things that happen uh, this week in the market. And so I can't wait to talk to you about it uh, this week. Oh, we might not even talk about it this week. We're, we might just continue on with last week's stuff, as well as maybe introduce to everyone what got us involved into investing. Uh, what say you about that? Um, yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So everyone, my name is Tin and this is Sean. Sean. <laughs> yes. And so I think it would be a great idea just to uh, pretty much tell everyone our story on how we got into the world of investments. I mean, you and I, Sean, like at last episode, we kind of told everyone that how we met was through the game of Go. And we've learned a lot of uh, just analogies to what the Go board game has in terms of what we see in the real world. And so I'm actually really curious, Sean, how did you get into your area of investment and what is your area of investment, uh, your strengths in it, so to speak? Um, let's see. Well, I uh, studied business in college and, um, you know, it's interesting. Going to business school is kind of like strategic management school, mm -hmm. which is uh, weird because how many... I don't know how many people are actually going to go into strategic management. Like, I guess if you went to Harvard, then you're probably going into strategic management, but you know, I went to a state school and okay. I think most of us probably were not going to go that high in a large organization. Hold but, on uh, really, really quickly. I'm sorry to interrupt, but what is strategic management? If, if you can help me out here. Kind of like um, how to, how to, run a large organization okay from the top you know mm -hmm. i mean i guess i guess it can be applied to small organizations but some some of the lessons can but a lot of them can't you know it was very interesting to me how little uh business school taught entrepreneurship mm. which i would think is i don't know would probably be the the fundamental aspect of business for the majority of students mm. um but anyways, so I've always been interested in business and interested in investing from that perspective. Mm -hmm. um, for a long time, I was a big index investor, and I still am to some extent. Um, but I'm getting more and more interested in delving into individual companies and seeing about uh, investing that way. Mm. Um, so really quickly, um, just to recall back what you said. So you, you found that the business school that you went into, they didn't really teach a lot about entrepreneurship. And why, why is that? I mean, I've never went to a business school. So just my background is a strictly science person. So I was a biology uh, uh, major. And so I never went to school for business. But you would think that entrepreneurship being the huge you know, trend these days, and being so integrated with the concept of a business would be taught more in an academic setting. So what is it that you saw that they didn't really cover in, in an academic background setting for business schools, for entrepreneurship? Um, well, like, so they did have a, an entrepreneurship concentration. Okay. So some, some of the students could go into that. Mm -hmm. um, I remember one time um, there was this word problem in one of the textbooks. It said something like, you're starting this uh, tree cutting service and you estimate that in your first four years, you're going to get 200 jobs the first year, 200 jobs the second year, 200 jobs the third year, and so on. And it went on. And I remember I said to the teacher, there's no way it would work that way. Like you start a tree cutting service and at the beginning you have zero jobs, you know, mm -hmm. and then 
you're just hoping to ramp up to the point where you start becoming profitable, you know, mm-hmm. and you would want to calculate that and try to get past that. But it's not like, oh, I started a business. I have the, the exact number of jobs today that I will have four years from now. Mm-hmm. I think that's extremely rare. Um, that kind of thought process, how to ramp up, how to, you know, I've been involved with uh, some entrepreneurship with some young businesses or had friends who started businesses. Mm-hmm. It's just a completely different ballgame. Hmm. Um, yeah, I think probably it has to do with um, Ivy League schools and big prestigious schools are teaching people who are going to be running giant organizations. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of smaller schools just kind of mimic them. You know, hmm. they say, oh, what are the big good schools do? We just have to do that, you know. Hmm. So w- would you say that a lot of the at least from your own experience and from your uh, understanding of how a business program is run, would you say it's more so that the business programs are there to teach a student how to be in upper management rather than being uh, going out into the world, creating their own company and then going from there? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I've never been to business school, so I wouldn't know um so yeah that, that's that's really good insight so awesome so well, what do you think they should have taught then in, um, in, in a know. school setting that would help i mean you 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 went uh, with a couple friends into opening up a small business uh what were some of the struggles that you saw that should have been taught in an entrepreneur class if they offered it um you know i don't i don't know if they had like a sales class like oh. how to you know do sales i mean they had marketing right see that's the okay. thing is we had a marketing class which a lot of the ways of teaching a lot of the things they taught seemed more oriented towards larger organizations uh, you know but for a small organization marketing is like sales it's like going out to the individual people and talking to them you know okay um what else so marketing and sales i mean to me that sounds exactly the same i mean i I don't really see a difference between two at least if i was to first delve into this subject um i mean for for the viewer who or for the listener who doesn't know anything about business how would you separate the two I, i know they overlap quite a bit but is there a a concrete definition of how you can explain sales and marketing. Um, so they do overlap. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, I think sales would be pitching the product to people in mm-hmm. person or on the phone or something like that. Okay. Um, marketing is like broadcast sales. Mm. That's that's kind of the way I would think of the distinction, hmm. and um, and you know, so a large organization would have a large budget for for broadcast marketing, and they hmm. talked a lot about uh, advertisement, hmm. and um, you know, smaller businesses, you just want to go around meet the people that you would like to try your service and tell them hmm. about it, you know. Mm. so so from what i'm getting is sales is really direct to the customer in in essence you are going directly to the customer rather than just putting up a billboard so to speak and hoping a customer will come through yeah okay cool so i know that for a lot of viewers (laughs) listeners that might seem very simple but i I cannot stress this enough that when i first started and now i'm going to segue into my story here so sorry sean (laughs) No worries. <laughs> when I first started, I had no concept of what a business was. Like legit no concept. I thought it was like, oh, it's like a Starbucks store. You go in, it says Starbucks on the store, and that's a business. Like that was the scope of my understanding. And so I was living under a rock for my whole college years and before. Uh, and again, I was in the world of science. I had no clue. I didn't want to think about what a business was. I, I had no concept of financials, money. And so 
you know, at least for my experience, what really got me to really look into this stuff was right when I got out of college, I couldn't find a job. I didn't know what to do. And I just started volunteering my time in a lot of different organizations. And a person just literally came up to me and told me, hey, why don't you do investments? And I was like, what do you mean by investments? They're like, well, why don't you invest in a business? You're working here, you're volunteering, you're making a little bit of cash uh, because I was getting paid uh, through tutoring and all of that. And so I had a little bit of cash saved up. And they're like, okay, why don't you invest this into a small business or something like that? And I was like, well, what do you mean go to like a Starbucks and give my money? And they're like, no, you know, why don't you invest in the stock market? Because right now the stock market is doing very well. And this was right after uh, 2008, 2009 uh, crater. And you know, a couple of years after that, the stock market was, you know, uh, regenerating, it's going up again. And so I was like, huh, what, what do you mean by that? And that's what got me into this game of trying to understand, you know, where to put my money. Uh, and, you know, I didn't make a lot back then. I was, I was working minimum wage and it was not a lot of money. But, you know, uh, just investing a portion of that, I saw a good amount of income or a good amount of return. And I was like, you know what? I'm hooked. And I, I just kept going and going and going from there. I learned a lot. And I also, uh, again, science background. Uh, I started my own business, if, if you will, you know, with the Twitch and with the Instagram and all of that. And I've learned a lot of lessons from that. And I do apply that into my investment practice. So, uh, but that is that is essentially me. So my, my forte, at least in in what I'm comfortable with doing is more so the equities market, the just straight out stock investments. Uh, I don't typically branch out from there. I don't go into options. Um, I've dabbled in options before and I lost a lot of money. And so now I'm really focused on staying with what I know. And that's been very fruitful, at least in my own experience. And uh, Sean, uh, I would say that, or I would guess that index indexing your own money into the stock market has been fruitful for you as well. Yes, it has. Okay. So how did you learn about index? Because when I first started back in 2011, 2012-ish, I had no clue what an index fund was. All I heard was mutual funds and stocks and bonds. Like those are the only three when I first started learning this for myself. And so how did you figure out what index funds were? You know, Did someone tell you about index fund or uh, what, what is an index fund? Um, so I think I read about it online. I think it first started when I was probably, uh, in junior high or high school. Mm-hmm. Um, I had made some money and I was talking to my dad and he said, Hey, why don't you put it into a, a, a mutual fund? Okay. And so, uh, um, uh, years later, probably after I got out of high school, I saw the money had grown thought that was pretty sweet so um at some point i went online and learned i read um i found the motley fool website and read they have a an introduction series of articles that um goes through just investing fundamentals um learned a lot from that um Eventually, I found the uh, Bogleheads forums. Uh, so mm-hmm. Bogleheads are like, you know, the followers of Jack Bogle, the founder mm-hmm. of Vanguard, who is yep. a big advocate of index investing. Mm-hmm. Um, I read, I think I read two of his books. Um, Which one did you read? Let's see. There was one about like, like capitalism is in danger from from unethical business um practices okay now i'd we could go on a tangent about that because i find it (laughs) odd that in that so so it's it's the idea is that um board members and stockholders are not really holding their companies accountable for the actions of the company Mm. and I don't see how index investing solves that. Mm-hmm. Couldn't it make it worse? Like, because now, you know, Vanguard and BlackRock and other, uh, you know, holders of 
massive amounts of stock are mm-hmm. making decisions for for their clients mm-hmm. right they they themselves are uh choosing board members and things like that mm. um so anyways i don't that's that's something i would like to learn more about because i don't mm. um like for example could i could i vote on the stock that I hold through an index fund, I think I probably could. I would just have to jump through a lot of hoops. I think so. I, yeah. Again, I don't. I stopped investing in funds uh, a while back, so I, I don't recall it too too well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I, I ended up deciding that index funds were the way to go for me because I do believe in the. Well, sometimes I believe in the thesis that, generally speaking, stock picking mm-hmm. it does not work as well as as just joining the market. Mm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know you where, probably don't. This agree is where with you that. and I disagree. We can certainly debate that for a while. Yes, and so here's my understanding. Okay, and I'm all for index funds, so it's not like I'm against it. Uh, actually, when I first started and not knowing what I was doing with stock investment, I actually put a lot of my my income uh, that I saved up on the side into a mutual fund, as well as an index fund. When I learned about it much later, and this is within the first year, two years of me, you know, starting to delve into this subject. And by the way, when I first delved into the subject, it was so boring. It was to the point where I'm reading something and I have to read it like 10 times because I had no clue what revenue meant. I had no clue what anything meant uh, in terms of business lingo and all of that. So anyways, long story short, it took me a while. And I remember just going through the contract of the mutual funds, the prospectus. So there's always, every time you invest into a mutual fund or an index fund, there's usually a a document that goes along with it. It's about a hundred something pages usually. And I was just looking through it because I actually recall hearing Tony Robbins, um, the big financial guru, self-help guru kind of guy on YouTube or on a podcast. I, I forgot what, but saying that there were hidden fees. When you invest in mutual funds. So I was like, okay, what are these fees? So I, I I just wanted to read the fine print. And so I opened it up. I had no clue what I was looking at, but there was a section in the prospectus where it says fees. And then I'm looking through it. I'm looking at what it's telling me on, on the brokerage account, which is like 1.3% or something. But when I'm looking in the document itself and I'm reading the fine print, it's not 1.3% when I'm adding everything up. And so when I added everything up, it was roughly around three, four-ish percent for the mutual fund that I was in. And so for me, that was a red flag because I'm I'm paying something that isn't what is written on the brokerage account. I'm paying a little bit more without realizing what I am paying for. And so I, again, I didn't do much math on it. I just saw the numbers did match up and that, that was enough for me to leave. And so ever since then, I just like, you know, I don't want to deal with that. I much rather just if I'm going to invest my money, I need to know what I'm what I want to invest in, because with the mutual fund and with an index fund, I'm investing in so many different companies that some of the companies I just don't agree with. And that's my personal preference. That's just that's just me. And so my understanding nowadays when it comes to indexing is that if you're willing to put in the work and willing to delve into the company itself and really understand it, index uh, index uh, investing might not be for that type of investor. And I fall under more of that category where I actually want to read these long annual reports and all of that. But for uh, a person, like say if I'm starting out and I have no clue what I'm doing, I I fully encourage index indexing because you know it, it's a safe. It's really safe. It follows the market and your investments will only go down as, as much as the market will go down. And so it, it's pretty much stored uh, as a, how do I put it? Not a wealth uh, generator, but more of a wealth holder kind of thing. And so I don't know why I was on this tangent. I just wanted to share that I because we were disagreeing and that's why I wanted to go into normal stock picking. 
And I found that when I actually did my normal stock picking, I got better returns. I mean, I was seeing 20% sometimes, uh, sometimes 40% up to, you know, 100%. And this is during the first five or six years uh, that I began investment with every stock that I picked. Now, granted, there are some losers and I've lost, you know, 80% in a stock before, again, within the first three or four years of investing. And so, yeah, I, I just had an overall better net return in my own experience. And so have you, have you started picking stocks before or did you pick stocks before you lost money and that's why you went into index? Uh, no, oh, I've, okay. I've frankly never really picked stocks. Mm. Um, I would be interested to hear, I'd be interested to see if there are studies on or look into studies on stock pickers. I know they've they've done some studies on stock pickers, and they found that uh, um, that they can do better by throwing darts or by having a cat walk around on a <laughs> newspaper. Um, but I wonder, you know, there's probably uh, some interesting caveats to that. Now, like one thing, for example, uh, I'd be curious to find out how stock pickers perform over the next 10 to 20 years because mm-hmm. um, because I'm thinking of the long-term debt cycle, which we could talk about, but I think this is Ray Dalio's theory or mm-hmm. a theory that he propounds. And basically we've been a, since the seventies when in- indexing was invented, mm-hmm. we've been in an epoch where um where in where uh, bond yields have been going down mm-hmm. and i think that changes the nature of the stock market yes, yes. um and mm-hmm. so maybe you know indexing uh i wouldn't be surprised if indexing does better during that type of epoch and then it will do worse over the next 20 or 30 years you mm-hmm. know well, it might. And the whole thing about the long-term debt cycle is now people are, well, at least in the cycle perspective, to my understanding, it's now we got to pay back, right? We've been borrowing on so much credit nowadays. And now people are like, hey, you know, we're kind of inflated. I kind of want to get paid my dues back. And so now we're starting to prevent inflation. We're trying to lower the printing money uh, every month. And when that happens, that's when emotions run high and people, you know, uh, get stressed out somewhat uh, because now things are getting more expensive or, you know, you're seeing the market go down and emotions play a huge role in that. And so um, if and this is just my my understanding of index funding, if you're you're invested, highly invested into the index fund. Again, the index follows the market. If you're in the S&P 500 index or the NASDAQ index or whatever index, Dow Jones index there is, if you're following the market, what's going to happen is that if the market goes down, you know, we might have a downward slope or something like that, then the index fund will go down with it, right? And mm-hmm. if you were to sell during that time, again, you're going to lose some money depending on how much you initially invested in the principal. And so... I don't know how fluctuative it's going to be since majority of, at least from what I'm seeing, a lot of people are now invested into indexing. And so if majority of the people are in indexing and they see the market going down so quickly, I would think that that would cause a huge, huge fluctuative phenomenon. Okay. Um, And so I'm, I'm not too sure about that, but Going back to what you were saying about the, what was it? To see if there was a study uh, on a stock picking investor, I actually just sent you a link and I'll probably post it up on the video description or the uh, podcast description uh, where, and this is how I actually got convinced into stock picking itself. And the link is called the Super Investors of Graham and Dodsville. And this is a Warren Buffett. He highly recommend reading this article uh, in one of his uh, annual meetings. And the premise of this whole 
document, and I don't know, Sean, if you've read this before, but the whole premise of this document was pretty much showing that exactly what you said, you know, you can have a monkey throw darts at a board. I think that was what you said. Otherwise, that's an analogy I'm going to use now. You can have a (laughs) monkey throw darts at a board and they will do just as well as anybody else in the Wall Street, you know, who's doing stock picking and all that. And so there, there is a group of investors that went to Columbia Business School or was taught by Ben Graham and uh, Dodd. I forgot who the other, uh, what was this? David Dodd, okay. Benjamin Graham, David Dodd, where they taught fundamentals of an analyzing a company. Now, back in their time, it's, it's cigar butts. It's like companies with extremely bad reputation, but had enough on the balance sheet where if they were to liquidate it, it would give the investor a little bit of profit like one puff left kind of thing. And so all of these investors that took this course, 15 of them, again, I I don't recall the numbers off the top of my head, but majority of them was able to do very well in the stock market during any time. So during a recession, a boom, a bust, whatever, they, they were on the top, top of the crop, so to speak. They had a great return. They had a great, um, history of stock picking investing and it all came from this little group and if if population if the general population right if if this was just a normal case where you're just averagely picking uh people from the same school same company you would generally see a similar behavior but it's only in this specific group where you actually see a big difference in what all the other investors are showing. And so that got me intrigued into actually understanding how stock picking worked and how investing, in this case, value investing worked. And so I, I, Sean, if you haven't read it yet, I would say, go read it. Listeners, if you haven't read it yet, go read it. It's it's a really interesting read. Uh, Again, the last time I've read this was back in 2000 and I want to say 13. 2012, 2013. So it's been quite a while, but that's at least from memory what I can remember. So. Interesting. Yeah. So there's a lot of strategies. And again, this is just my understanding of business in general. And it's just through my experience of doing stock picking. You know, there's going to be certain things that you will be looking for when looking at a company. And when we first started, or when I first started, picking stocks, it was, I really didn't know anything about the company. I just knew the name. It's like, oh, I want to invest into like a company like McDonald's. All right. I know McDonald's. Okay. Let's put my money in. But I didn't really understand the fundamentals behind it. And I didn't really understand how to know whether or not the company is on a discount or it's on a fair price or expensive price, so to speak. And a lot of times when I'm trying to explain this to you know my friends and family, I would say, well, if you go to the market, say you're shopping for groceries, you'll you'll notice a uh, a can can of beans selling for eighty nine cents at one grocery store, another can of beans selling for ninety nine cents, another can of beans selling for two dollars at another grocery store. And so as you get more experience shopping on multiple different areas, you'll you kind of pick up what is a really fair price and what's a really expensive price or what's a really cheap price. And that's the premise of how I would approach stock picking today. And, and it's just really getting that experience and you know just shopping around, so to speak, just to see what's pricey and what isn't. Uh, I know it's not as simple as that, but that's as simple as I can explain it right now. So it, it's a, it's a long process. It, it really is, in my opinion. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I went on a huge tangent. So you were saying, Sean, <laughs> um. <laughs> <laughs> I know we had it like a whole episode lined up, but this is, this is just, I'm just pouring out like my experience right now with, with this, this stuff. And, you know, uh, and if if you actually looked at it, Sean, with the whole I- index funding and, and crypto, 
you you kind of do your own homework. Am I correct to say that? Like you actually put in some time and effort to understand, you know, a little bit of crypto, a little bit of uh, indexing so that you, you, you feel more confident that you're not going to lose your money. Yeah, certainly. So, and I think that in essence is on the premise of value investing. It, it's you're tr- you have to do some sort of homework, right? And mm-hmm. if you're not going to do any homework, say that you just throw a, a, a dart at a dartboard and it lands on a company, that's more of being a very speculative investor. Speculative just means that you're, you're essentially going with the wind. You're gambling at that point uh, versus actually understanding, doing a little bit of research, doing a little bit of homework that, that gives you a better edge on understanding, hey, I think that this index fund is going to go great or this crypto coin is going to go great um, because I, I put in five hours of research into it or something like that. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know where I was getting with this. I'm just talking. I got to be more organized. <laughs> but anyways, so any thoughts on, on that? I, I know. Have you read that article from Warren Buffett before? I know you've heard of Warren Buffett before, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I know some people do um, outperform the market. Mm-hmm. Um, there's actually this this idea in finance of the efficient market hypothesis, the idea yes. that markets are that you know prices are always correct. Yes, which I think is is not true. Uh, I agree. It's kind of <laughs> I don't know. It's kind of a goofy thing to think honestly okay like, so how where did you hear the efficient market theory because i heard it through another podcast uh invested that's where i first heard about mm-hmm. efficient market theory by danielle town and phil town um, but where did you hear about efficient market theory um i heard of it through economics i actually read oh, really? a oh, wow. book about the history of the efficient market theory oh okay um, it's a it's a long ongoing debate in economics and so why don't you agree with it then um why don't i i think it i think because of the propagation of information and knowledge and Mm. people's different ability to process that knowledge um Mm -hmm. so so information about companies becomes available mm-hmm. um but it becomes a question of how many of the investors are going to find out that information right mm-hmm. the ones that do the homework will find out more of the information the ones who don't do the homework mm-hmm. will not find out that information mm-hmm. so they are at a disadvantage and then once you get information um you may be better at acting on that information for example in a game of chess mm-hmm. everyone has all the information in the game of chess mm-hmm. but some you know someone wins and someone loses because mm-hmm. that person did a better job of of processing that information and acting on it mm-hmm. um so you now i'm i'm it's interesting to think about softer versions of the efficient markets hypothesis. Mm. The prices are always correct, but the prices, you know, contain valuable signals. Right. And mm-hmm. I mean, that's like the softest version of it, but mm. you could say that um, prices in a market where everybody's well-informed and everyone's paying attention, those prices are probably pretty good, mm. you know, pretty accurate um so so (laughs) the thing about investing is this is you know something i've had in my head for a long time is that the the issue with investing is not whether the market is perfectly efficient but Mm -hmm. whether or not it is more efficient than me Mm. right whether the market knows more than i do so the real goal perhaps in all investing is to find investments where you actually know more Mm -hmm. than everyone else one way or the other you could get there by doing homework you can get there by just 
thinking everybody is wrong, right? If, if there's a popular thesis about a particular investment and you're just like, wow, that thesis is so wrong, mm-hmm. then uh, you can cash in on that. Mm-hmm. Well, this comes to the idea of, of just, and I'm going to be very academic right now. And this is what I teach my students all the time in, in, in my science classes. This is the idea of formulating a hypothesis. This is a scientific method in, in general. This is how we learn, right? And I agree. Uh, efficient market theory is very inef- it, 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 I don't agree with it <laughs> personally. Um, and I found this through my own experiences that there will be times where the market will be extremely extremely inefficient and usually during that time uh, majority of the buyers and sellers are hyper emotional and so uh, at least from my experience with going through this you know process I find myself that I have to really have control over my emotion and the best way for me to do that is to have a hypothesis of what I think a company is and then getting data, getting facts behind that hypothesis to really confirm that. Um, and if I find that my hypothesis confirms is confirmed by the data, then whatever fluctuation goes on in the market, I just don't think it's 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 going to change what I found. And again, this is where doing homework comes in. And you're absolutely right. You want to have the advantage. And that's the whole point is you have to invest in what you're, you understand most and what you're competent in. This is what uh, we call in the value investing world, the uh, circle of competence, right? You want to invest in something that you actually understand or you're interested in learning and how to understand and then going from there. Uh, and that has been invaluable to me uh, it, during my investment practice because it made me stay involved. It made me more interested in what I was looking into, especially when you're reading boring, super boring annual reports that are 500, 800, 300 pages long. And so, and that, that's the whole process is even when we're writing uh, for a scientific journal or for any academic setting where we want it to get peer reviewed and and publish, we have to have a strong evidence of theory behind that. And so that is just my two cents on efficient market theory and just confirming uh, confirming what you were saying earlier about you know being able to understand what you know and going from there. So but yeah. Now, the thing is that I'm finding is the chess lingo. I, I really like how you brought in the chess. And again, this is the whole point of us doing this idea of, of this podcast where we're relating it to the game of Go, which is a, a very ancient type of board game where it you don't necessarily know how the pieces work, right? And in chess, you, you know how a pawn works, a queen works, a rook, a bishop, a knight. You know how they move. You know where they're going to go, and you can visually see it. But in the game of Go, the pieces are all the same. There is no difference in pieces. What there is is a difference in experience. And I think that if I was to relate investment to the game of Go, it really is that when you first start out, you're not going to know what you're doing. Right, Just like in the game of Go, you have no idea what you're doing. You're just placing stones on the board. But as you get a little bit more experience, as you get involved with the game, with investment, you begin to see certain patterns. You begin to see certain situations that seem familiar. Say that you're studying history you know, back in the 1920s, the Roaring Twenties, and you're comparing it to now. Or you're studying, you know, during the 1950s and you're comparing it to now or 87 and comparing it to now, you're going to see a lot of similarities in the same type of situations. And understanding that, like in the game of Go, understanding the different circumstances or situations, you can better prepare what your next move is going to be. And I think that this is the reason why we are so invested in that game is because we're seeing that type of similarities into the investment world. Uh, Sean, I don't know if you also see that same thing, but what's your thoughts on the game of Go related to an investment then? Uh, 
yeah there's definitely um a lot of similarities i mean it's almost like in the game of go you're adding stones to the board so it's almost like you're investing mm-hmm. you're investing your stones in mm-hmm. particular territories yes and um and there's opportunities in every direction especially mm-hmm. especially in the beginning of the game um there's there's something for everybody you know even mm-hmm. if you lose a game of go you can come away with like 40 percent of the territory mm-hmm. um so that's what's nice about nice about investing is if you get to the point where you're doing a decent job of it then you may be underperforming other investors but you still are probably making some good money for yourself mm-hmm. um and yeah that's one of the lessons i often take away from go is that it's n- if you know having the chess mindset of s- looking at life and saying i want this thing and then i must get it and it becomes this binary thing like i will either win or i will lose and then i will be sad but um the i think it's more valuable to say to sort of take what you want and divide it up and then prioritize it you know mm-hmm. and say this is my top priority mm-hmm. i'm going to get that first you know and then you start going down the list and eventually you can't have everything but because you prioritized you're pretty happy with what you got so what do, what do you mean by prioritizing in relation to investing then? Because in, in the game of Go, when we prioritize a certain move, we know what we want out of that outcome. Granted, there's multiple variations to get to that outcome and we have to adapt to the circumstance. But when you're, when you're talking about in investment terms, what, what does that mean to you? Um, well, I mean, part of it could be how much time do I devote to investing? You know? Oh, okay. Um, maybe I don't want to devote that much time to investing. So I'll buy an index fund. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you think you could get better performance, then maybe you would devote some time to learning about business, especially if you already know about some type of business, if you work in a particular business or something like that, mm-hmm. then you might be able to get that edge mm-hmm. with less work. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of uh, the combination of the priority and the cost of the thing, right? If you, if there's something that's pretty high priority, that's also low cost, go for that. You know, that's mm-hmm. like the winning move right there. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, in investing, I would say it's, it's, it's kind of about investing time and of course, investing your money and prioritizing you know, how you want to invest that time and money. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to segue just a little bit, but staying on the same topic. Mm-hmm. If one was to invest their time now in today's circumstance, where should that person look? I mean, what, what industry, what sector, what form of investment should we be going into if we want to prioritize enough time to really understand and really make a, a good decision on where to put our money again this is strictly a, a, an opinion but i would like to know what you think um well my first answer is the one you know about okay <laughs> but um um i don't know that's it's that's a big question so some i was listening to some podcasts and they brought up the you know the way our times are changing people mm-hmm. are looking for something that's going to hold steady like we may go into a recession so what's something that's going to be mm-hmm. hold steady and one example they brought up was healthcare stocks mm-hmm. which i thought was a pretty pretty good recommendation you know um mm-hmm. people will need those stocks um it would be interesting to go back and look at entertainment related stocks mm-hmm. because i know often entertainment industry actually um weathers recessions very well mm-hmm um but i also wonder how much that's going to hold up and what kind of um there could come a recession where people 
find their way to cheap entertainment that doesn't end up rewarding the entertainment companies as much as it has mm. in past recessions. Because, mm. um, yeah, the thing is, you know, the field of technology moves so fast and it pervades a lot of businesses and it can disrupt the way you think it's going to go, you know, and entertainment is one of those. Mm-hmm. Like Netflix, for example, you know, recently just Big took news. a big <laughs> Yep. Um, which I kind of thought was going to happen, actually. I remember years ago, I was talking to my dad about how it was, a, it was in the news that Netflix had surpassed the valuation of Disney. Mm. And me and my dad were just like, no way. Mm. That is, that is, no, that's, that is, that's the reputation of the efficient hypothesis or market hypothesis right there. That's just, that's wrong. You know, it's, I mean, maybe people were seeing Netflix's technology prowess. um, And for what they do, they've done some amazing things from a technological perspective, as far as, um, you know, serving those videos without disruption mm-hmm. at high quality they've they've done some amazing things they they created these uh i think they created the idea of the sort of the chaos monkey where someone from their tech team will go in to their system somewhere among their servers they'll just start turning a few things off hmm. in in the production environment because the idea is it needs to be so resilient that it needs to handle stuff. And mm. so they'll just go in and start to their production system and just start flipping things off. And they want to know that it's going to stay up. Um, so yeah, Netflix is a pretty great technology company, but as far as their business, and then you turn around and compare that to the business of Disney. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking that's not, that's the, if Netflix is exceeding their valuation, that's a short term, aberration and and in the future that will get fixed because disney unless unless they completely shoot themselves in the foot disney's definitely going to be more valuable than netflix in the long run Hmm. but disney is very niche isn't it don't they just show their disney movies and a little bit outside of that but they're they're not like getting rights to all different videos you know I, i i wouldn't think that you know uh, a video from amazon would be shown like an amazon original would be shown on disney because that's amazon's property right that's their monopoly for that content and just vice versa disney's not going to show their videos on amazon or netflix because they own their own video service platform so so disney before disney had their own video service platform they did show their they would license their content to those platforms. Okay. Um, but Disney, um, for starters, they have other lines of business. They have mm-hmm. theme parks. They had cruise lines. I don't know how that's doing these days after COVID, <laughs> but um, they, you know, sell physical products. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have been expanding their ip so the the sphere of disney movies has grown to include marvel movies uh star wars movies and um disney has had divisions that uh made serious movies i think touchstone maybe was a division of disney Hmm. but um so disney is fully capable of making whatever they need to make right it might take time but Hmm. i think the plan for disney plus is it they will have all of the types of content that everyone would want to watch basically. Mm. Um, but it'll be a long-term strategy of building up that content. Currently they mostly have, like you said, the Disney movies. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't currently have stuff that appeals to everyone. Certainly not as much as Netflix does, but um, you know, with, with all of these um platforms increasing their prices people start having to pick and choose more you know i Mm -hmm. think for a while people would just load up on most or all of them Mm -hmm. and just watch them all but if you've got kids Mm -hmm. you may not want to give up disney right and then you look at netflix you just again you prioritize your shows right so you watch Mm -hmm. 
the one you really want to watch, you start going down the list. Then eventually you say, you know, I got Amazon, I got Disney. Let's just turn off Netflix for a while, you know, because that one's bringing less value than the other ones. Right. Okay. So yeah. Who's like, when I looked at Netflix, one of the things I thought is who's, who's the master of creating content. Netflix creates some good content, but I don't think they're the master of it. You know, Mm. I think Disney is the one that's more likely to be called the master of creating good content, you know? Well, it's, it's creating good content in, in this situation of, you know, for children and for... Uh, no, I would say just overall. Really? really? I mean, yeah. I mean, they create a lot of good stuff, especially, you know, uh, story-wise with Pixar, uh, their Pixar studio. I mean, you know, we as adults now grew up with Pixar in our childhood and you know they were able to transition a lot of the story into how we can relate it as well as on you know our children uh with the new generation so i would say that that yeah 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 i agree Mm -hmm. now disney you know i I wouldn't want to say they're perfect and they've they've certainly made some missteps like yes uh, i think the some of the star wars movies could have been better (laughs) Um, (laughs) We're not going to get into the Star Wars debate here. So. Yeah. <laughs> Are you sure? Because we we don't want to talk for three hours about. Uh... No, no, no. I and no. <laughs> so... <laughs> Anyways, oh yeah, we we can save that for another episode. How about that? <laughs> All right. So, uh, I think that we're going to call it here for today's episode. What do you think? Uh, yeah, that's I know. Good. I know it's like an abrupt ending, but I think this is a good place to stop. We kind of ended it on a, a nice note with Disney, and uh, so yeah. So thank you everyone so much for listening and watching. And until our next episode, I'm gonna do like an investment outro here, and this is something that's really, I think we both share in terms of go and in terms of investment. And this is like related to it. Remember, don't trade a dollar for a penny. Don't trade a dollar for a penny. Anyways, that's my outro. (laughs) So (laughs) we're going to stick with it. So guys, thank you again. Don't trade a dollar for a penny. And I'll see everyone. We will see everyone, actually. You and me, Sean. We will see everyone in our next episode. Cool? Cool. Take care. Bye.